We're in a series on the abounding joy of New Testament hope. We are 14 weeks in. And the topic this morning is how faith and sin are each generated by where our hope is placed. And that's, a, that's been a recurring title for the last four weeks. How faith and sin, positive and negative aspects of our development, how faith and sin are each generated by where our hope is placed. And this morning I want to look at the subject of impatience. And if you're visiting with us, Uh, and you're jumping into this right now, I want to, after we read the text and pray, I want to just give you a bit of a, keep you in the loop of where we are in the study and how it's it's been unfolding and developing. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is is being renewed day by day. That shouldn't be taken lightly. Day by day. um, There is a kind of unfolding of spiritual life and development that is, is more gradually incremental than most people think. So day-by-day so day renewal, is, it's kind of like sitting and, and looking at, at, at the hand of the clock. Remember those kind of clocks? And, and watching it move. It is actually moving. But you'd have to go upstairs and come down in 25 minutes to see it. If you sit there and just stare at it, you actually don't see it moving. Because it's, it's such a momentary thing. So Paul says there's, there's something that happens in our hearts. You know, m- more than you think when you, you, you are busy and you pick the Bible up off the shelf and you open it up and you're reading somewhere in Leviticus and you read it and, and you just think, what in the world was that for? But it's, it's like watching the hand move on the clock. Paul says there's, this, there's a renewing that kind of takes place day by day. So it's, it's a gradual progressive, but nonetheless happening thing. For this light momentary affliction, so that's what he's talking about as he talks about renewal, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The reason he uses the word comparison is because that's what he's going to do in this text. He's going to be comparing things. As we look, as we look, there's the activity. Not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen, think of everything you can see with your eyes. People. Spouses. Children. Your Porsche, all of your investments, your house, everything you can see, your business, they're this, transient, 
But the things that are unseen are eternal. Two other short texts. They're on the, I think they're on the same slide. Yes. Three other short texts. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This isn't transient. Lamentation 3.25. The Lord is good to those who, who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. Let's pray. There's a thread here through all of these texts. They confront our, our impatience with life. And they reveal it to be not just a matter of temperament, but an issue of heart. And oh, how we need you, Holy Spirit, to come and open up our hearts and our minds. The most serious work our minds will do all week long is now. And so let it be fruitful, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll try and look at each of those texts, at least briefly, this morning. Now here's a bit of a review. We've been taking this whole series, and especially these last four teachings, to say something deeply biblical and, I think, radically empowering to a life of holiness. And that matters because, according to the writer of Hebrews, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So this is a big issue. And the, and the central thought of this series of studies, it could be stated fairly briefly, even though unfolding it in our lives takes some time. And it's, it's this. Here's the principle. Where you place your hope determines the growth of either faith or sin. Where you place your hope determines the growth of either faith or sin. That's it. Faith grows hand in hand with hope because, because it's hope, future anticipating hope that leans into God's promises and his loving kindness and says they're better than life. It's not just the title of a song we used to sing. God's loving kindness, that is his coming kindness in my future. His future grace. It's better than the life I can see with my physical eyes. It's better than the future I can establish with my own hands. His future kindness. The kindness in which I presently hope is better than the life I can create on my own terms. For satisfaction, for joy, for security. So hope, join hands with Faith in relishing and cherishing the truth that for Don Horbin, it is better for my satisfaction and my security. There's the future outlook. It's better to please God than to please anyone else. Hope and faith join hands and what they do is they, they bank on, they invest in the truth that God's Future grace is more rewarding than 
any promise that sin or compromise might offer. There's people right now who are on the edge of making a big spiritual blunder. Just in a crowd this size, it's inevitable. And the reason you're about to make a huge blunder in life is because you're in a situation and you think you see your future satisfaction in a course of action that you have mapped out all contrary to the will of God. And here's what's happened. The devil has come to you and said, listen, this is better. This will work. And to the extent that you believe that, that you hope in what the enemy promises, you're going to louse up your future. Where you place your hope increases both sin or holiness. That's the point of this. Hope is faith for the future. So, so my hope is where I, I bank my life in the present. Hope is investing my life in God. And that's how hope generates faith. Almost to the point of making the two indistinguishable. We looked at that last Sunday morning. And because of this, there is nothing Satan is more anxious to do than set your hope anywhere but in God's promise. That's all Satan does. He does nothing else. I said last week, he's a one-trick pony. Only one thing in every life to cause you to hope in another course of action other than God's. He doesn't really care what. It can be money, fame, power, pleasure, satisfaction and security are the umbrella labels I've used for all of those things. He wants us looking to anything and anyone but God to make our lives good. That's how it works. So here's what we've been doing the last few weeks. How does Satan do this? How how does he talk to you and to me? What are his tools for taking my hope in God and causing me to put it in something else? What are the tools that he uses? He uses pride. We looked at that. To turn us from God's sovereignty to our own lordship of self. Last Sunday morning, he uses anxiety to turn us from trust in God's bounty and care to the limitations of our own resources, that they might not be enough. And today we're going to study the fight against impatience, another tool of the enemy. Point number one. And if you're visiting with us, see, the rest of the church didn't gasp at that because they're used to me meandering around for the first little while Point number one, we need to understand what impatience really is. And we need to work to connect it to our relationship with God. Because our tendency is to think of it just as something psychological, temperament, part of our makeup, just the way we're wired. We're inclined wrongly, I think, to reduce all impatience to just 
a, a personal matter, like our temperament. And I think in this we greatly wrong our souls and we limit um, the freeing work of deep repentance brought about by the Holy Spirit. I'm stating this morning that impatience is a very distinct form of unbelief. It's not a neutral, innocent emotion. Impatience, like pride and anxiety, is a very specific form of unbelief. Impatience is it's unbelief in two directions. Two directions. Impatience is always caused by unbelief about the goodness of God's care. Okay, the goodness of God's care. Secondly, unbelief in the wisdom of God's timing. Those aren't quite the same thing. One, the goodness of God's care. And two, the wisdom of his timing. All impatience stems from one of those two forms of unbelief. Doubting the goodness of God's care or the wisdom of his timing. Think about it. Impatience springs up in our heart when our plan is interrupted, maybe even shattered, by circumstances for which we see no good reason or explanation. goodness of God's care. Secondly, impatience springs up in the heart when the timing of God's intervention isn't meshing with with our desires or, or even our prayers. Why am I laboring this point when it seems obvious? Because until impatience is is identified. I mean, diagnose the way a doctor finds a tumor or a deadly virus. And until it's properly identified, we will never fully appreciate the devil's plan to use impatience as an enemy of hope in God. And, and we'll never see why impatience is a holiness issue, not just a temperament issue. So remember... The devil wants to use either the nature of our circumstances or the pace of God's intervention to take our hope from God. The nature of our circumstances or the pace of God's intervention to take our hope from God. That's the first point. Okay, point number two. Like pride and anxiety, patience spawns a host of other sins by diminishing my vision of ultimate eternal realities. It births a whole bunch of different sins by diminishing my vision of ultimate eternal realities. That, that's one of the things that Paul addresses in that text that we read. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Paul, here's one of the places where Paul takes, okay, so I'm talking about the theology, what the Bible says. Now here, in this text, Paul takes it and he, and he works it into his own heart. Okay? This is Paul applying this truth to his own life. 
2 Corinthians 4.16. So, so we do not lose heart. Losing heart. That's, that's the taking away of our hope in God. Losing heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. I talked about that. Don't assume renewal isn't happening just because you don't, you don't feel like you've experienced a revival on Wednesday. Okay, that, that's what I'm trying to say. For this slight momentary, there's the time word, affliction, is preparing for us, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, there's, there's the important activity. Not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. So, so if the devil can frame my satisfaction and my security with immediate solutions or material provisions, he accomplishes Two of his aims at the same time. First, my hope becomes attached to tangible, visible objects rather than God and his promise for my future. Understand, nothing changes in my theology. I go to church, I sing the worship courses, I raise my hands, I believe the Bible is God's word. I believe Jesus died for my sins. Nothing, nothing changes in my theology when this happens. I will still say I love God more than anything else. Christians rarely deny that. But in actual practice, I, I, will, I will bleed more when I lose money or reputation or success than when I skip devotions. Because my hope is more there. So, so my creed stays exactly the same. It's the object of my hope that shifts. And, and, and the thing is, I'm talking to myself here too. Very, very few Christians can diagnose that problem early with the kind of internal honesty that's needed to expose it. So I say again, the devil works hard to root my satisfaction, my security, my joy in this world. That's all that he cares about. He knows that if, that if he has my hope, he has me. Everybody get that? If he has my hope, this will work. If he has my hope, he has me. If he has your hope, that's the closest... Let me say something that will shock you. If he has your hope, as you sit through church service after church, if the devil has your hope, that's, that's the closest thing you're going to get to satanic possession without actual possession. You're doomed. Once that's where your hope is. When he comes and goes, no, no, no. I know, I know. Everybody says, you know, stay with your spouse, but... Gee, no one knows how miserable I've been. And, and the devil says, I, just get out. The whole church will forget about it in six months. No. 
all sorts of situations. Once he has your hope, he has you. Paul's opening words in that 2 Corinthians 4, 16, so we do not lose heart. Impatience is a heart issue. Paul says he doesn't lose heart, and only one thing saves him. Only one thing saves him, and it's what this is all about. What saves Paul's heart is his hope is fixed in eternity rather than the present. That's all that saves him. He puts his pants on just the way you do. That's what saves him, his hope. But if his hope were shifted, if his satisfaction and his security and his joy were rooted in the stuff of this world, he would lose his heart. That doesn't mean just discouraged. It means lose your heart. It's not just his emotions. That's how we've come to use the word. But biblically, losing heart has to do with losing himself, his selfhood in front of God. To the degree that his hope is in anything but God... He, he, he cuts off the source of life. I said, if you can remember back, that the devil accomplishes two things when he draws our hope and fastens it to this material world. Here's the second thing. So it's B. The power of sin will continue to dominate my life as long as there are expected benefits of convenience, pleasure, or gain. That's because we're all designed by God in such a way that we will do we will do anything to protect our joy. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. You were created that way. We will do anything to protect our own joy. It's not a sin to live for joy. The sin comes when we sell ourselves short in our pursuit of joy. That's the sin. We can only properly protect ourselves as we understand that our greatest joy is hope in God rather than anything else. So maybe another way of saying this is we protect ourselves as we hope in God. As long as my greatest joy is hoping in God, then I will not pursue joy anywhere else. So the sin is not that we pursue joy. Our sin is that we believe the devil's lies. He shifts our hope. And we settle for less joy, more fleeting joy than God intends. God's will for your life is what you would always choose if you had all the facts. God's will for your life is what you would always choose if you had all the facts. This is profoundly related to holiness, though many Christians don't think it all the way through. We, we, we open our lives up to sinful distractions and reductions when we pursue secondary joys as primary joys. So, so the person who has understanding to see that his greatest source of joy is found in God, he will not allow anything to usurp God's place as an object of hope, he will, he will regulate his whole life around hoping in God, but not merely as duty, but as 
treasure. And that's the kingdom truth. Remember that Jesus labored in so many parables repeatedly. Finding God was finding treasure. Why does he have to tell us that? Because there is an enemy of your heart and soul who comes and says, no, no, the real goods are over here. He did it with Eve in the garden. He's been doing it ever since. I know all this can seem hard to digest, but you can see it working itself out in Paul's experience in that text from 2 Corinthians. I mean, as he writes those words about being renewed day by day, not looking at the things that are seen. Don't put your hope there. But the things that are unseen, they're eternal. Put your hope there. Bank your life. Invest your life there. As he writes those words, he's, he's having a horrible time. He's doing the best he can to win the lost, and the lost hate him for doing that. He's doing his best to lead this church. And that particular church is almost against everything Paul does. And you add that in with the fact that he's not getting any younger. And his body is experiencing nothing but pain and weakness and sickness. There's Paul. God's man of faith and power. Now, if Paul's joy were rooted in his success or his health, or even his ministry, he would be in big trouble because none of those things is doing very well. They're all wearing out. But here's the secret of Paul's patience and his renewal day by day. Let me clean it up for you. We don't lose heart. Our outer nature is wasting away. No point denying it. But our inner nature being renewed day by day. This slight momentary affliction. Are you kidding? Slight? Telephone. Is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look. Not to the things that are seen. But the things that are unseen. The things that are seen. Transient. I can't keep them. Paul says. I can't keep my health, nor can you. Your trip to the hospital is right around the corner. You can't keep it. Nobody can. These things are transient. Things that are unseen, well, they're eternal. Those are forever things. And so Paul says, I am so certain of the eternal and what God is doing, even in my trials, to get me ready for the eternal, to fix my heart on the eternal. I'm, I'm just not swayed by what happens to me in the temporal. I'm so delighted by what I have in God, I'm not robbed by anything that I might lose now. Those aren't the things that secure me, and those aren't the things that satisfy me. Point number three, we're almost done. Hope fights impatience. Well, we're not quite almost done, but we're, we're, you know. Hope fights impatience by learning to always give God the benefit of the doubt in times of confusion. Always give God the benefit of the doubt. Say that with me. Always give God the benefit. Say it again. Always give God the benefit of the doubt. Because you're going to have doubts. You can't live life without them. 
Always give God the benefit of the doubt. I don't know if you've ever heard the, the legend of Moses. It's not, it's not a biblical story. It's a legend. It's a cute little story. That's all it is. I want to read it, I want to read it to you, and then we'll draw some, we'll go to some biblical texts. Try and follow this story. The legend says that Moses once sat near a well in meditation. A wayfarer stopped to drink from the well, and when he did so, his purse fell from his belt into the sand. The man departed. Shortly afterwards, another man passed near the well, saw the purse, and picked it up. Later, a third man stopped to quench his thirst and then went to sleep in the shadow of the well. Okay, so far so good. Meanwhile, the first man had discovered that his purse was missing, and assuming that he must have lost it at the well, he returned and awoke the sleeper, who of course knew nothing of the whole incident, and demanded his money back. An argument followed, and irate, the first man slew the third man. Whereupon Moses said to God, you see why it is that men do not believe in you. There's so much evil, so much injustice. Why should the first man have lost his purse and then become a murderer? Why should the second have gotten a purse full of gold without having ever worked for it? And the third was completely innocent. Why was he slain? You following the story? God answered, for once and only once, I'm going to give you an explanation. I will not do this again. The first man was a thief's son. The purse contained money stolen by his father from the father of the second man, who, finding the purse, only found what was his own. The third was a murderer whose crime had never been exposed and who received from the first the punishment he deserved. Now, in the future, believe that there is sense and righteousness in what transpires even when you do not see it or understand it. Always give God the benefit of the doubt. Now that story, of course, isn't biblical at all. These are Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And what, te what tends to happen is we tend to just look at things like, you know, somebody goes bankrupt or somebody discovers they have cancer. And, okay, there's that verse. And it's a tough verse, but it, it's so much broader than that. It's, it's much broader better applied to here you are and you're right on the verge of making a decision you know isn't right but you've come to believe that it's going to be better for you you're right on the edge of it and that's where you have to stop and say it will be better for me if I obey God even though I don't see it now and even though I don't feel it now it will work together for my ultimate good Isaiah 64 4 from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts, look at this, who acts for those who, there's the verb, 
who wait for him. I wish I had more time to show you how God does this over and over again in the scriptures. I'm just going to wrap up with one account. Toward the end of a prolonged Jewish exile in Babylon, Jewish scholars are beginning to wonder how God would ever be able to fulfill his promises to Jeremiah. Remember, promises to Jeremiah that God would once again bring his people, not out of Egyptian bondage this time, but Babylonian bondage. God would bring them back into their own land. How that would happen. God was about to do something that was going to amaze them. And this is, not like the legend of Moses, this is right out of your Bible. And you can look at it in Ezra, right before Nehemiah in your Bible. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this guy is not a godly king. He's a wicked king. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, Cyrus is not a godly man. He has no track record of serving God, and he has no intention of serving God. But he's going to serve God. We now know that 42,000 Jewish refugees will return and they will start building their temple. And, and many of us know the amazing story of fulfilled prophecy in that account of Cyrus. It gets told over and over again. The thing is, the story doesn't end there. Look at Ezra chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build, bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius. There's the next king of Persia. Imagine the discouragement, okay? God had miraculously opened this door and now... They sat and they watched their enemies close it in their faces. But there's more to this amazing story. In Ezra 5, 1, God sends two prophets. You probably know them because they have books of the Bible named after them. But he sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. He sends them to encourage the people building the temple back in Judah. But the enemies, people who are living in Judah... But enemies of the Jews, they go even further. They write a letter. They write a letter to Darius, the new king, begging him to stop the work of these foolish Jews. Darius is another king, not a godly man at all. And he would normally have very little use for these Jews. But Darius starts searching the archives. And he just happens to come across an old mandate from the days of Cyrus 
authorizing the building of the temple. And Darius sends out a letter with these words. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full. And without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. Let me wrap this up. Here's the application. Okay, here's the application. These stories, why are, why are they there? These stories are placed in the Bible to teach me to hope in God. To hope in God always. You think about it. What, what's, what's, what's really going on here? Didn't God know? Didn't God know about those enemies of the Jews when he caused Cyrus to send them back home in the first place? Didn't God know that there'd be nothing but opposition there? Didn't God know about all the trials they would face? Didn't God know about the delays, the setbacks, the discouragement, everything that would rise up against them once they got back and started rebuilding? And the answer is, of course, yes, God knew all about it. Then why, why does he put them through all that? And the answer is stunning. The answer is God not only wants that temple rebuilt, he wants his enemies paying for it. Now, between the time of Cyrus and the time of Darius, there were faithful workers who died, laboring on those walls, and they never saw the completion. And just like that legend of Moses, never knowing why God would allow so many delays and trials in the whole process, they didn't see the end result. But God knew, and now we know, and we are given these precious stories and precious promises to keep us patient and to keep us hoping in God more than anything else. There is incredible power for hope in one of the best-known verses in the whole Bible. You would all know it. I sometimes think it's a divine plan behind the way almost everyone in church and out of church knows these words. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's a great psalm. We, we yank it out of the dust at funerals and stuff like that. Do you believe that God follows you everywhere, every day? That he follows you with his goodness and mercy? All the days of my life, that's now. Do you believe that in everything he will work for your good, your ultimate good, that that's where your hope lies and you won't place your hope there if you are impatient because impatience is the opposite of hope. Hope in God for your security and your satisfaction. 
I'm going to close by giving you some homework. And isn't it great to have a pastor who is so kind and loving that he gives you a verse to memorize that any four-year-old can digest? It's Lamentations 3.25. Here's the memory verse. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. That's an easy memory verse, right? Let's try it all together. The Lord is good to those who wait. Say it again. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. The waiting, of course, is the test of hope, right? That's the test of hope. The waiting is where God sees if impatience rules my life or hope rules my life. Check your heart. When you find yourself thinking about what you're really looking forward to. What you can't wait to have happen next week, next month, this year. What is your mind picturing? When you, I just can't wait for this. What is your mind picturing? See, to the extent that the object your mind is picturing isn't eternal and Godward, you are setting yourself up for a disaster. That's what I'm saying. Here's what I can't wait for. Here's what I'm planning. Here's all I'm thinking about. To the extent that it isn't Godward, you're setting yourself up for disaster. You'll become impatient with God and you'll lose the purifying power of biblical hope. And then, at that moment, just think about this. Pull that little verse. Replay it in your mind. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. And everyone said, let's pray. It is not a small, it is not a small shift of mind to learn to hope in God because every other force inwardly, outwardly, every other force in this world orchestrated by the spirit of the age, every other force in this world teaches us to hope in something else. But our eyes are on you. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. And for, for people in the sound of my voice or who will be in the sound of my voice on the web, for people who are right on the edge of impatiently taking multitudes of life situations into their own hands, I pray that they will hear they will hear the voice of your love and the voice of your grace saying, it won't work that way. Keep your hope in me. Always give God the benefit of the doubt. Because there is richness in following the Lord that we might not see at this point. 
just as there are incredible dangers when we take our lives into our own hands, even though we don't see those dangers at this point either. So, so take us down the road. Take us down the road to the destination of our hope. Grant unto us soft and repentant hearts. We do not have that within ourselves to soften our own hearts. Do that work in all of our lives 